You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 324A by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Fourth Dimension, translated by Catherine Krieger. This is Lecture 6, given in Berlin on the June 7, 1905. Today I must conclude these lectures on the fourth dimension of space, though I actually would like to present a complicated system in greater detail, which would require demonstrating many more of Hinton's models. All I can do is refer you to his three thorough and insightful books. Of course, no one who is unwilling to use analogies, such as those presented in the previous lectures, will be able to acquire a mental image of four-dimensional space. A new way of developing thoughts is needed. Now, I would like to develop a real image, parallel projection, of a tesseract. We saw that a square in two-dimensional space has four edges. Its counterpart in three dimensions is the cube, which has six square sides, see figure 42. The four-dimensional counterpart is the tesseract, which is bounded by eight cubes. Consequently, the projection of a tesseract into three-dimensional space consists of eight interpenetrating cubes. We saw how these eight cubes can coincide in three-dimensional space. I will now construct a different projection of a tesseract. Imagine holding a cube up to the light so that it casts a shadow on the board. We can then trace the shadow with chalk. See figure 43. As you see, the result is a hexagon. If you imagine the cube as transparent, you can see that in its projection onto a plane, the three front faces coincide with the three rear faces to form the hexagonal figure. To get a projection that we can apply to a tesseract, please imagine that the cube in front of you is positioned so that the front point A exactly covers the rear point C. If you then eliminate the third dimension, the result is once again a hexagonal shadow. Let me draw this for you. See figure 44. When you imagine the cube in this position, you see only its three front faces. The three other faces are concealed behind them. The faces of the cube appear foreshortened, and its angles no longer look like right angles. Seen from this perspective, the cube looks like a regular hexagon. Thus we have created an image of a three-dimensional cube in two-dimensional space. Because this projection shortens the edges and alters the angles, we must imagine the six square faces of the cube as rhombuses. Now, let's repeat the operation of projecting a three-dimensional cube onto a plane with a four-dimensional figure that we project into three-dimensional space we will use parallel projection to depict a tesseract, a figure composed of eight cubes, in the third dimension. Performing this operation on a cube results in three visible and three invisible edges. 
In reality, they jut into space and do not lie flat in the plane of projection. Now imagine a cube distorted into a rhombic parallelopiped. If you take eight such figures, you can assemble the structures defining a tesseract so that they interpenetrate and doubly coincide with the rhombic cubes in a rhombic dodecahedron. See figure 45. This figure has one more axis than a three-dimensional cube. Naturally, a four-dimensional figure has four axes. Even when its components interpenetrate, four axes remain. Thus, this projection contains eight interpenetrating cubes, shown as rhombic cubes. A rhombic dodecahedron is a symmetrical image or shadow of a tesseract projected into three-dimensional space. Although we have arrived at these relationships by analogy, the analogy is totally valid. Just as a cube can be projected onto a plane, a tesseract also can be depicted by projecting it into three-dimensional space. The resulting projection is to the tesseract as the cube's shadow is to the cube. I believe this operation is readily understandable. I would like to link what we have just done to the wonderful image supplied by Plato and Schopenhauer in the metaphor of the cave. Plato asks us to imagine people chained in a cave so that they cannot turn their heads and can see only the rear wall. Behind them, other people carry various objects past the mouth of the cave. These people and objects are three-dimensional, but the prisoners see only shadows cast on the wall. Everything in this room, for example, would appear only as two-dimensional shadow images on the opposite wall. Then Plato tells us that our situation in the world is similar. We are the people chained in the cave. Although we ourselves are four-dimensional, as is everything else, all that we see appears only in the form of images in three-dimensional space. According to Plato, we are dependent on seeing only the three-dimensional shadow images of things instead of their realities. I see my own hand only as a shadow image. In reality, it is four-dimensional. We see only images of four-dimensional reality, images like that of the tesseract that I showed you. In ancient Greece, Plato attempted to explain that the bodies we know are actually four-dimensional and that we see only their shadow images in three-dimensional space. This statement is not completely arbitrary, as I will explain shortly. Initially, of course, we can say that it is mere speculation. How can we possibly imagine that there is any reality to these figures that appear on the wall? But now, imagine yourself sitting here in a row, unable to move. Suddenly the shadows begin moving. You cannot possibly conclude that the images on the wall could move without leaving the second dimension. When an image moves on the wall, something must have caused movement of the actual object, which is not on the wall. Objects in three-dimensional space can move past each other, something their two-dimensional shadow images cannot do if you imagine them as impenetrable, that is, as consisting of substance. If we imagine these images to be substantial, they cannot move past each other without leaving the second dimension. As long as the images on the wall remain motionless, 
I have no reason to conclude that anything is happening away from the wall, outside the realm of two-dimensional shadow images. As soon as they begin to move, however, I am forced to investigate the source of the movement and to conclude that the change can originate only in a movement outside the wall, in a third dimension. Thus the change in the images has informed us that there is a third dimension in addition to the second. Although a mere image possesses a certain reality and very specific attributes, it is essentially different from the real object. A mirror image, too, is undeniably a mere image. Readers aside, that last one is M-E-R-E. In other words, a mirror image, too, is undeniably a mere image. M-E-R-E. End of readers aside. You see yourself in the mirror, but you are also present out here. Without the presence of a third element, that is, a being that moves, you cannot really know which one is you. The mirror image makes the same movements as the original. It has no ability to move itself, but is dependent on the real object, the being. In this way we can distinguish between an image and a being by saying that only a being can produce change or movement out of itself. I realize that the shadow images on the wall cannot make themselves move. Therefore, they are not beings. I must transcend the images in order to discover the beings. Now apply this train of thought to the world in general. The world is three-dimensional. But if you consider it by itself, grasping it in thought, you will discover that it is essentially immobile. Even if you imagine it frozen at a certain point in time, however, the world is still three-dimensional. In reality, the world is not the same at any two points in time. It changes. Now imagine the absence of these different moments. What is, remains. If there were no time, the world would never change. But even without time or changes, it would still be three-dimensional. Similarly, the images on the wall remain two-dimensional but the fact that they change suggests the existence of a third dimension. That the world is constantly changing, but would remain three-dimensional even without change, suggests that we need to look for the change in a fourth dimension. The reason for change, the cause of change, the activity of change, must be sought outside the third dimension. At this point you grasp the existence of the fourth dimension and the justification for Plato's metaphor. We can understand the entire three-dimensional world as the shadow projection of a four-dimensional world. The only question is how to grasp the reality of this fourth dimension. Of course, we must understand that it is impossible for the fourth dimension to enter the third directly. It cannot. The fourth dimension cannot simply fall into the third dimension. Now, I would like to show you how to acquire a concept of transcending the third dimension. In one of my earlier lectures here, I attempted to awaken a similar idea in you. Imagine that we have a circle. If you picture this circle getting bigger and bigger, so that any specific segment becomes flatter and flatter, the diameter eventually becomes so large that the circle is transformed into a straight line. A line has only one dimension, but a circle has two. How do we get back into two dimensions? 
by bending the straight line to form a circle again. When you imagine curving a circular surface, it first becomes a bowl and eventually, if you continue to curve it, a sphere. A curved line acquires a second dimension and a curved plane a third. And if you could still make a cube curve, it would have to curve into the fourth dimension and the result would be a spherical tesseract. A spherical surface can be considered a curved two-dimensional figure. In nature, the sphere appears in the form of the cell, the smallest living being. The boundaries of a cell are spherical. Here we have the difference between the living and the lifeless. Minerals in their crystalline form are always bounded by planes, by flat surfaces, while life is built up out of cells and bounded by spherical surfaces. Just as crystals are built up out of flattened spheres or planes, life is built up out of cells or abutting spheres. The difference between the living and the lifeless lies in the character of their boundaries. An octahedron is bounded by eight triangles. When we imagine its eight sides as spheres, the result is an eight-celled living thing. When you, in quotes, curve a cube, which is a three-dimensional figure, the result is a four-dimensional figure, the spherical tesseract. But if you curve all of space, the resulting figure relates to three-dimensional space as a sphere relates to a plane. As a three-dimensional object, a cube, like any crystal, is bounded by planes. The essence of a crystal is that it is constructed of flat boundary planes. The essence of life is that it is constructed of curved surfaces, namely cells, while a figure on a still higher level of existence would be bounded by four-dimensional structures. A three-dimensional figure is bounded by two-dimensional figures. A four-dimensional being, that is, a living thing, is bounded by three-dimensional beings, namely spheres and cells. A five-dimensional being is bounded by four-dimensional beings, namely spherical tesseracts. Thus we see the need to move from three-dimensional beings to four-dimensional and then five-dimensional beings. What needs to happen with a four-dimensional being? A change must take place within the third dimension. In other words, when you hang pictures, which are two-dimensional on the wall, they generally remain immobile. When you see two-dimensional images moving, you must conclude that the cause of the movement can lie only outside the surface of the wall, that is, that the third dimension of space prompts the change. When you find changes taking place within the third dimension, you must conclude that a fourth dimension has an effect on beings who experience changes within their three dimensions of space. We have not truly recognized a plant when we know it only in its three dimensions. Plants are constantly changing. Change is an essential aspect of plants, a token of a higher form of existence. A cube remains the same. Its form changes only when you break it. A plant changes shape by itself, which means that the change must be caused by some factor that exists outside the third dimension and is expressed in the fourth dimension. What is this factor? You see, 
If you draw this cube at different points in time, you will find that it always remains the same. But when you draw a plant and compare the original to your copy three weeks later, the original will have changed. Our analogy, therefore, is fully valid. Every living thing points to a higher element in which its true being dwells, and time is the expression of this higher element. Time is the symptomatic expression or manifestation of life, or the fourth dimension, in the three dimensions of physical space. In other words, all beings for whom time is intrinsically meaningful are images of four-dimensional beings. After three years or six years, this cube will still be the same. A lily seedling changes, however, because time has real meaning for it. What we see in the lily is merely the three-dimensional image of the four-dimensional lily being. Time is an image or projection of the fourth dimension of organic life into the three spatial dimensions of the physical world. To clarify how each successive dimension relates to the preceding one, please follow this line of thought. A cube has three dimensions. To imagine the third, you tell yourself that it is perpendicular to the second and that the second is perpendicular to the first. It is characteristic of the three dimensions that they are perpendicular to each other. We also can conceive of the third dimension as arising out of the next dimension, the fourth. Envision coloring the faces of a cube and manipulating the colors in a specific way as Hinton did. The changes you induce correspond exactly to the change undergone by a three-dimensional being when it develops over time, thus passing into the fourth dimension. When you cut through a four-dimensional being at any point, that is, when you take away its fourth dimension, you destroy the being. Doing this to a plant is just like taking an impression of the plant and casting it in plaster. You hold it fast by destroying its fourth dimension, the time factor, and the result is a three-dimensional figure. When time, the fourth dimension, is critically important to any three-dimensional being, that being must be alive. And now we come to the fifth dimension. You might say that this dimension must have another boundary that is perpendicular to the fourth dimension. We saw that the relationship between the fourth dimension and the third is similar to the relationship between the third and second dimensions. It is more difficult to imagine the fifth dimension, but once again we can use an analogy to give us some idea about it. How does any dimension come about? When you draw a line, no further dimensions emerge as long as the line simply continues in the same direction. Another dimension is added only when you imagine two opposing directions or forces that meet and neutralize at a point. The new dimension arises only as an expression of the neutralization of forces. We must be able to see the new dimension as the addition of a line in which two streams of forces are neutralized. We can imagine the dimension is coming either from the right or from the left, as positive in the first instance and negative in the second. 
Thus I grasp each independent dimension as a polar stream of forces with both a positive and a negative component. The neutralization of the polar component forces is the new dimension. Taking this as our starting point, let's develop a mental image of the fifth dimension. We must first imagine positive and negative aspects of the fourth dimension, which we know is the expression of time. Let's picture a collision between two beings for whom time is meaningful. The result will have to be similar to the neutralization of opposing forces that we talked about earlier. When two four-dimensional beings connect, the result is their fifth dimension. The fifth dimension is the result or consequence of an exchange or neutralization of polar forces in that two living things who influence each other produce something that they do not have in common either in the three ordinary dimensions of space or in the fourth dimension in time. This new element has its boundaries outside these dimensions. It is what we called empathy or sensory activity, the capacity that informs one being about another. It is the recognition of the inner soul-spiritual aspect of another being. Without the addition of the higher fifth dimension, that is, without entering the realm of sensory activity, no being would ever be able to know about any aspects of another being that lie outside time and space. Of course, in this sense, we understand sensory activity simply as the fifth dimension's projection or expression in the physical world. It would be too difficult to build up the sixth dimension in the same way, so for now I will simply tell you what it is. If we continued along the same line of thinking, we would find that the expression of the sixth dimension in the three-dimensional world is self-awareness. As three-dimensional beings, we humans share our image character with other three-dimensional beings. Plants possess an additional dimension, the fourth. For this reason you will never discover the ultimate being of the plant in the three dimensions of space. You must ascend to a fourth dimension, to the astral sphere. If you want to understand a being that possesses sensory ability, you must ascend to the fifth dimension, lower devakan or the rupa sphere, and to understand a being with self-awareness, namely the human being, you must ascend to the sixth dimension, upper devakan, or the arupa sphere. The human beings we encounter at present are really six-dimensional beings. What we have called sensory ability, or empathy, and self-awareness are projections of the fifth and sixth dimensions, respectively, into ordinary three-dimensional space. Albeit unconsciously for the most part, human beings extend all the way into these spiritual spheres. Only there can their essential nature be recognized. As six-dimensional beings we understand the higher worlds only when we attempt to relinquish the characteristic attributes of lower dimensions. I cannot do more than suggest why we believe the world to be merely three-dimensional. Our view is based on seeing the world as a reflection of higher factors. 
The most you can see in a mirror is a mirror image of yourself. In fact, the three dimensions of our physical space are reflections, material images of three higher, causal, creative dimensions. Thus our material world has a polar, spiritual counterpart in the group of the three next higher dimensions, that is, in the fourth, fifth, and sixth. Similarly, the fourth through sixth dimensions have their polar counterparts in still more distant spiritual worlds, in dimensions that remain a matter of conjecture for us. Consider water, and water that has been allowed to freeze. In both cases the substance is the same, but water and ice are very different in form. You can imagine a similar process taking place with regard to the three higher human dimensions. When you imagine human beings as purely spiritual beings, you must envision them as possessing only the three higher dimensions of self-awareness, feeling, and time, and that these dimensions are reflected in the three ordinary dimensions in the physical world. When yogis, students of esotericism, want to ascend to knowledge of the higher worlds, they must gradually replace reflections with realities. For example, when they consider a plant, they must learn to replace the lower dimensions with the higher ones. Learning to disregard one of a plant's spatial dimensions and substitute the corresponding higher dimension, namely time, enables them to understand a two-dimensional being that is moving. What must students of esotericism do to make this being correspond to reality? rather than remaining a mere image. If they were simply to disregard the third dimension and add the fourth, the result would be something imaginary. The following thought will help us move toward an answer. By filming a living being, even though we subtract the third dimension from events that were originally three-dimensional, the succession of images adds the dimension of time. When we then add sensory ability to this animated image, we perform an operation similar to the one I described as curving a three-dimensional figure into the fourth dimension. The result of this operation is a four-dimensional figure whose dimensions include two of our spatial dimensions and two higher ones, namely time and sensory ability. Such beings do indeed exist, and now that I have come to the real conclusion of our study of the dimensions, I would like to name them for you. Imagine two spatial dimensions, that is, a plane, and suppose that this plane is endowed with movement. Picture it curving to become a sensate being, pushing a two-dimensional surface in front of it. Such a being is very dissimilar to and acts very differently from a three-dimensional being in our space. The surface being that we have constructed is completely open in one direction. It looks two-dimensional, it comes toward you, and you cannot get around it. This being is a radiant being. It is nothing other than openness in a particular direction. Through such a being, initiates then become familiar with other beings whom they describe as divine messengers 
approaching them in flames of fire. The description of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai shows simply that he was approached by such a being and could perceive its dimensions. This being, which resembled a human being minus the third dimension, was active in sensation and time. The abstract images in religious documents are more than mere outer symbols. They are mighty realities that we can learn about by taking possession of what we have been attempting to understand through analogies. The more diligently and energetically you ponder such analogies, the more eagerly you submerse yourself in them, the more they work on your spirit to release higher capacities. This applies, for example, to the explanation of the analogy between the relationship of a cube to a hexagon and that of a tesseract to a rhombic dodecahedron. The latter is the projection of a tesseract into the three-dimensional physical world. By visualizing these figures as if they possessed independent life, that is, by allowing a cube to grow out of its projection, the hexagon, and the tesseract to develop out of its projection, the rhombic dodecahedron, your lower mental body learns to grasp the beings I just described. When you not only have followed my suggestions, but also have made this operation come alive, as esoteric students do, in full waking consciousness, you will notice that four-dimensional figures begin to appear in your dreams. At that point you no longer have far to go to be able to bring them into your waking consciousness. You then will be able to see the fourth dimension in every four-dimensional being. The astral sphere is the fourth dimension. Devakan up to Rupa is the fifth dimension. Devakan up to Arupa is the sixth dimension. These three worlds, physical, astral, and heavenly, Devakan, encompass six dimensions. The still higher worlds are the polar opposites of these dimensions. So now we have a chart. I'll give my best here. At the top of the chart are four columns, mineral, plant, animal, human. And on the left, we have a column that is Arupa, Rupa, astral plane, physical plane. Intersecting Arupa and mineral, self-awareness. Intersecting mineral, Rupa is sensory ability. Intersecting plant and Rupa is self-awareness. Intersecting mineral with astral plane is life. Intersecting plant with astral plane is sensory ability. Intersecting animal with astral plane is self-awareness. Back to mineral, intersecting with physical plane, you get form. Plant with physical plane, you get life. Animal with physical plane, you get sensory activity. Human with physical plane, you get self-awareness. End of Lecture 6